In theory and play of the Duende, Spanish poet Federico García Lorca extolled the artistic necessity of Duende, a poetic and artistic force that emerges from the darkness of our wounds. Lorca believed that art could only be great when Duende was joined with wisdom and inspiration, that the romance of angels and muses alone is not enough to create art that resonates with our fleshy human experience. It was Duende I thought of while in conversation with my guest today, Mojasola Adebayo. She is a performer, playwright, and theater maker who often draws from the deep wells of Black pain to address the extractive practices that have robbed Black people of our lives and environments for 400 years. She marries these histories of extraction with the fantastical, adventurous, and more than human to create art that challenges, provokes, and inspires. Today, Mojasola takes us on a journey from Goldsmiths University to Antarctica to space and back again in a conversation that explores utilizing performance to challenge the sanctity of whiteness. What an orgasm-seeking space odyssey tells us about the world-changing potential of queer black pleasure and how the reanimation of the life and story of Henrietta Lacks prompts us to consider our own genealogical and cosmic immortality. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Mojasola Adebayo. Mojasola, it's such an honor to have you here on Busy Being Black. Thank you so much for making the time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners. It's great to be here. It's my honor, honestly. Um, to open my conversations, I love to ask my guests the same question. How's your heart? That's such a poignant question because I have a heart condition. Um, my heart is ticking really well and um in this moment yeah it, anything could happen but yeah my my anatomical heart is being in time in rhythm so yeah so that that bodes well um my emotional heart is also at peace so thank you for asking how's your heart oh thank you for asking uh my heart is good it's actually buoyant today <laughs> i bought my first plant that's not mine. You, for <laughs> listeners, um, Mojazola can see a plant in the background. That's not mine. It came with the flat. But I, I went out and intentionally bought my own plant for my bedroom. And I, I did so because I've been really inspired by this biological philosopher I'm reading, Andreas Weber. Uh -huh. And he's kind of really um, enchanting me and making me think about my ability to nurture life and within myself and, and in other uh, more than human um, things. And so I went out and I found the perfect plant for me. And I've named the plant Andreas. <laughs> and I found the perfect spot for him in my room. So that that kind of small act has really set me really set me up for the entire day. I feel really, really buoyant. It's beautiful. I hope you have great conversations. This is, apparently there's something really actually true when you there's something about speaking to a plant 
um, that does feed your, your, that does make you feel better. And if it's something about the exchange of oxygen or whatever it is, I don't know, I don't get the science, but yeah. Yeah, well, as Andrea Sobo argues, the world like is motivated by feeling, even our cells, like down to a cellular level, our individual cells are motivated by feeling, not only by some like Darwinistic causal mechanistic drive, but this, this feeling, this urge to connect and merge and bond and transform. And I just, so this relationship with plants for as one example, which so many of us are familiar with, this kind of nurturing and tending and talking to something else outside of ourselves, I think is also an opportunity to get out of our heads mm. and into the world again. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And if I can ask, you have a heart condition mm. and that must also transform how you engage with the world on a day-to-day -day basis. Is that presumptuous? Um, it affects my sense of, um, it, it, it's, it's a very simple, when you say you have a heart, heart condition, I suppose it always, because it's the heart, it always sounds very kind of serious, but it's a very simple thing. It's just a, a, a rhythm thing that can, can get serious. But I suppose that it affects how I, I think about, um, the control that one has over one's own kind of rhythm and the rhythm of the world and that there are there are extreme moments where I just can't move very far or speak very much at all um, and where everything on the outside looks perfectly ordinary um, but inside my body is running 100 meters um is sprinting or inside um my body is uh sinking underwater that's what it can feel like but everything appears fine so i suppose it, it alters when those moments happen it alters yeah my sense of um perception of what is on the outside and the inside and also um I suppose an appreciation of the moments where you can be in rhythm with each other, but that actually um, the, the rhythms that are set for us are very often do not work for us. And sometimes, so that the arrhythmia really, really highlights that, that, uh, the, that there, is a, there is a rhythm that, that one is supposed to be at, the nine to five, the you know, five day week, the four weeks holidays a year, if you're lucky, the straightness, the capitalism, the big machine that we're all supposed to fit in, that, that often does not work. So my arrhythmia, my heart problem really exposes that there's sometimes where the, the rhythms that is set doesn't work, doesn't work. And, and it's fine to slow down and it's fine to sit down or do something else. So I'm getting very Kind of philosophical and I don't really know much about this philosophically but that's yeah that, yeah it changes my 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 relationship with the machine and is there something that you do to create rhythm around yourself or to create space for you to follow your own rhythm when you need to I should more um just attending to those things that keep, keep lots of us healthy 
um, around food and sleep and exercise and friendship and um, therapy and all kinds of stuff. But uh, I should attend to those things more. And it's usually a red flag. Usually when my heart goes funny, it's usually my body just saying, you're not doing those things. You have to do those things. It's also about vulnerability. I spent so much of my life being um, uh, like lots of us, you know, having to, you know, some wear some very, very heavy armor and um, uh, be in a state of protection, hypervigilance, just kind of being ready for battle always. And um, if my heart goes funny, um, I can't. I just, I just can't. And, and so it puts me in ex an extreme vulnerable place, um, which um, I'm learning through therapy that it's, that that's really, uh, to, a, to a point, is really, really healthy to be, it because we're all so vulnerable, we're all fragile, we're all, you know, everybody is. So to be able to allow oneself moments of, moments of vulnerability and, uh, mm. Yeah, really hard. I'm experiencing that vulnerability or that necessity for vulnerability anew. Mm. When I started Busy Being Black, I had a conversation with Bisi Alimi, the Nigerian mm. LGBT human rights yeah. activist. Yeah. And two things happened in that conversation. He said, boys like me don't get friends like you, which really moved me in the moment. But he also went to places in our conversation that I wasn't prepared for him to go, like I wasn't expecting him to go. And in the moment I remember thinking, you have to meet him at his vulnerability. And mm -hmm. I had to do this kind of like recalibration. And so it was from that conversation with Bissy that I realized, oh, I'm creating a space here for vulnerability. And I thought until really recently that I was being vulnerable, but I've gone through some things over the past year and I can feel myself. So let me just say it, like I'm, I'm, I'm in recovery. Um, and saying that out loud and saying it to people is, is, is such a profound act of vulnerability to let people know that, hey, I'm working on something and it's societally frowned upon and it, it, but also societally encouraged. And I don't know what I'm doing necessarily. And, you know, reaching out to my best friend saying, I want you to be part of this process and to invite you into this but I just don't know what I need from you I just am kind of pouring my heart out to you in the hopes that mm -hmm. something will come of it and that opening up allows other people a chance to show up for us in ways that they're not able to when we're just going or trying to meet the rhythm of the structure you're so right I think um if you're a person who finds it extremely difficult to 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 be vulnerable, um, then to know that that you're you're not just being vulnerable on your own in a corner, you're you're in relationship, and it, and that it allows it allows a space between people um, to open up that we all need. There's a possibility that cannot be there. Unless, unless somebody is vulnerable. There's something that's just not possible unless one is vulnerable. Um, and there are many ways of being, but unless those spaces of vulnerability are there, there are certain qualities, there are certain poems, there are certain pieces of music, there are certain smells, there are certain ways of loving that never, ever happen unless, unless that's there. Um, 
and yeah, and that thing of of, of the thing the things that we can take to make us to kind of finally put us in a place where we feel like we're vulnerable, or you know, um, something that we can consume that makes us feel that we're in that place, but that is um, that might be a fast way of getting there, but it does it doesn't do it's not the same, and we know it's not the same. Um, but yeah, wow. So thank you for sharing that because mm. here I am in my bathroom, you're with your new plant, Andreas, Andrea. Andreas, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, being vulnerable in our own ways with people. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why I love that question. How's your heart? It's such a, it's an invitation, right? It's a, yeah. it's yeah. a way to open up. Um, I'm always curious about how people came to the pen, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and I read that you started off writing and performing as a rapper, as a teenager. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, and I laugh because I'm so, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I'm so old that there was no um, YouTube, Instagram, mobile phones, <laughs> or even CDs um, back then. So I cannot be found um, on a couple of cassette tapes floating around, I guess. Apparently, cassette tapes are making a comeback, so I need to I need to be aware of that. But yeah, I was at yeah in the eighties. Um, I started rapping on the street, fundamentalist, religious, um, evangelical street rapper. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of um, I always have to have the proviso that though it sound being a street rapper, yeah, that might have sounded cool, but it, there was very little cool about it really but um you're rapping for god years, rapping for god rapping for jesus <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i started um i think the first I, I just started by taking um kind of instrumentals of of hip-hop tunes that i liked and rewriting the lyrics i think the first was push it by salt and pepper and the next was uh buffalo stance named the cherry so that gives you an instance of you know where I am in time, but it's kind of ironic that I took Salt and Pepper's "Push It," which is a really sexy song, <laughs> and kind of uh, yeah, made Jesus it out. But um, yeah, so that's what I was doing for about eight years, it, as uh, you know, in in a, a time of my life of, of yeah, I mean, I was a child, but I was also you know massively repressing my sexuality, but finding great kind of expression and kind of. Yeah, so um, so I mean, yeah, I it, it was a fun time and it's a fun anecdote, but it, that's definitely what got me into playing with playing with words, playing with words and performing. And so, where was the transformation from street rapper for Jesus to? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so delightful in retrospect. Um, so this transformation from street rapper to playwright, like when did you kind of realize that playwriting could be a vessel for your creative expression um i i ended up on a on a degree in drama only because in gold and goldsmith in southeast london only because I, I i basically got kicked off another degree program and gave up when i and i i ended up doing drama it's a long story but um it's a boring story um um, because the drama department at Goldsmiths was was the only department that would accept me on a degree program, and my dad is Nigerian, and there's just no way um, that I was going to um, 
not get a degree um, when I had been accepted into the university. So I, I, in the late 80s, I was literally, or early, yeah, late 80s, wandering around the corridors of Goldsmiths trying to find a degree program that would accept me. Politics, history, sociology, no FR wanted me, and drama took me on the very first year of their drama and theatre arts program. So in I wandered with my yellow and green t-shirt and my red trainers and my kind of faded rapper look and everybody was in the room wearing black and nobody was black and it was just bizarre and I yeah, just ended up on this degree and hated it most of it um, but by the end of it I got introduced to um, something called theatre of the oppressed which is a very heavy way of talking about kind of theatre for social change and that really woke me up. That got me really excited. And I ended up training with the kind of, um, I suppose is known as the kind of innovator of that work, but he's really just one of the makers of that work. Um, Augusto Boal, who's a Brazilian um, theater maker and educationalist. And um, so, yeah, I, did, I got into training with him and then did loads and loads of kind of theater for social change work internationally, kind of making shows and, and acting as well and being a regular, regular actor. For many years and then I got just got really tired exhausted um by traveling a lot and working in areas of conflict and crisis and um, um South Africa post-apartheid and uh, slums in India and um in Palestine and uh yeah just got pretty burnt out um uh, although it's very exciting work and then ended up doing a a, a master's in physical theater so funnily enough movement work is what got me into writing so mm. I started writing for for movement and, and out of that came uh uh what was to become a, a show called Muhammad Ali and me um and another show called Modge of the Antarctic so I, I kind of I st yeah wrote out of movement really and that's interesting about that is that Ocean Vong the poet and educator said in an interview once that when his students he, he advises his students that when they can't, uh, when they're working on a poem or a piece of writing and they can't quite find the right words or the line breaks, or it just it's just not flowing, to go walk with their work because language is contained within the body, says Ocean, and that the process of movement and walking unlocks or releases the language. There's something about movement and language that is so intricately, intimately interwoven. Absolutely. I, mean, I I totally agree. And in that feeling that 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 language is movement, is a form of movement, that thought is movement, that there is nothing beyond movement, actually, in human life anyway. Um, that, yeah, breath is movement. It's all movement. And, and so. Uh, so, yeah, if you can move your body, then 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 it will yeah, free behind the mind will follow. I believe you <laughs> kind of like. It's also when I run workshops and that kind of in writing, I try and encourage people to write with their hands if they can, you know, as in not necessarily type, because there's something else that happens when one writes with a, a pen or a pencil or sketches and doodles that that encourages the sense of flow um, or or just write and speak. You, you know, I think a lot of the time people get kind of trapped into this idea that writing is is now just sitting in a blank room with a computer. And for a lot of people, that's kind of a terrifying idea. And a lot of the time I, I say to people, go, go for a walk and talk, go talk with yourself, go talk on your mobile phone, 
or 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 doodle or draw or yeah absolutely agree with that with that writer in doing my research for the conversation was the first time i'd heard of theater of the oppressed and i think it's a wonderful approach and idea and was um and it's inspired theater of the oppressed is inspired by the work of paulo freire and pedagogy of the oppressed and this idea mm -hmm. that you know um the people who are being educated are also the this, they are both the subject and the object of the transformation, right? That we have to put the education usefully in the minds and in the hands of other people. How mm -hmm. has theater of the oppressed shaped and molded the work that you do now as a playwright and theater maker? Yeah, I, I think the, this kind of central idea of the relationship that you've kind of really tapped into in kind of pedagogy of the oppressed, that 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 great education is all about a relationship uh, a dialogue an interaction not just a kind of dumping ground for knowledge um and that theater is a relationship as well not just relationships with people on stage or people making the work but a relationship with one's audience that, that that's a give and take that really clicked for me uh, you know when I was doing my degree and after three years it was kind of like what what the hell am I doing here and that really worked for me um but and I think that really taps into taps into hip hop, even though I was a street rapper, you know, what are my big loves were, were bands like Public Enemy and that, that you know, that that hip hop is is all about that to that back into even in even in the even the even rapping itself, not just necessarily with an audience um, and the idea of call and response. Um, and the kind of African traditions of, of, of that that's what performance is, that or that's what singing is, that or that's what ritual is, it's a call and response, it's a it's a relationship between each other. And that still is very, very much part of how I work as a theater maker. And and playwriting is just one aspect of being a theater maker, but it's all about that that what's going on in the relationship between between the performers and and the audience if there are performers and audience so there's always interactivity in some way in my plays but I think that happens a lot with with a lot of black and queer and black queer audiences anyway is going on all of the time if you go and see a show with loads of black people in the audience people will be speaking but it doesn't matter where you go in the black black universe <laughs> People so true. <laughs> like people and queer audiences too, and particularly black queer audiences. So it's it's in what we do anyway, and I'm so I'm all about just kind of allowing that kind of space. So so in theatre of the oppressed, it's a very direct kind of interaction. Like the play is performed, and then it's shown a second time, and the second time around, any member of the audience can get up and get up on the stage and change the story and solve the problem and have a debate. Um, so it's not as direct as that in my plays, but it, there's there's always space for that. Um, so in Family Tree, for example, there's there's a whole call and response section. We can, you know, that people can call out names and speak back. And so I'm just tapping into, I think, what, what has always been in there in in black traditions of kind of performance, whether it be hip hop or West African storytelling or whatever. This idea that through theater of the oppressed we kind of understand better that um that humans are natural performers i think augusto augusto boal said that theater is what we have inside we are animals who have the privilege of being actors we are acting 
all the time. Mm-hmm. And this made me think of Travis Alabanza, whom you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a conversation years back now, and Travis was telling me how you know the theater, the way they disrupt this kind of theater experience is through their understanding that the audience thinks they're coming to see a performance, but actually the performance is taking place out on the streets. It, the performance is everyday life. It's the decisions people make before they leave the house, right? Before they don that armor that you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation. And it also occurs to me that you're also speaking to people in relationship through space and time as well. So if we can go to Maj of the Antarctic, which is this kind of fabulous and fantastical um, play and experience, I guess, is probably a more apt way to describe it. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Maj of the Antarctic? Sure. Um, yeah, I was doing this MA that I mentioned earlier, and I, I wanted to, for my kind of final research, I wanted to think about the ways in which Black folks have used performance in everyday life. Um, which kind of connects in what you were saying about Travis and um, Travis's approach to kind of thinking about theatre and performance. And um, I was kind of curious about that, the ways in which we we're just kind of doing it all the time, but particularly in Black experience and perhaps even more so in Black queer experience. Um, and then I just, and I, I was focusing on Muhammad Ali, the boxer and activist, because I was particularly taken with the way that he, he would um, dance in a boxing ring, which now is almost cliche, this kind of idea of shuffling your feet in a boxing ring. But at the time, it was totally radical and saying, you know, things like, you know, and and rapping at press conferences and doing magic tricks and saying he's as pretty as a girl. And, you know, like, you do not say you're as pretty as a girl when you're a six foot, whatever, heavyweight black boxer in 1969. You don't talk about your prettiness. You know, all of that stuff is now kind of archaic, but I was totally fascinated and kind of in love with this idea. So I was was doing a big project on Muhammad Ali, which ended up becoming Muhammad Ali and Me, the play. But in the course of that research, tripped upon this story of Ellen Craft, who, for those who don't know, was an African-American enslaved woman who cross-dressed as a white man to escape slavery. Um, and um, did it and got away with it um, with her husband. Um, William Craft was a dark-skinned um, African-American man. Um, she was very light-skinned. Um, they decided, they were married and decided, okay, um, they planned their escape, but and you know thinking okay she can cross she can pass as a white person but you know obviously her passing as a white woman with him um being a black man that that nobody would believe that relationship so that's why they decided in a very practical way okay you're going to cross dress as a white man um but it was this incredible odyssey across the United States and they ended up coming to England which I was really interested in and um, had children and met Queen Victoria and became abolitionists themselves and just the most extraordinary people. So I was particularly fascinated by her. And um, in this book, um, Crossing a Thousand Miles, um, A Thousand Miles for Freedom, which uh, penned by William Craft, um, is beautiful. And it's their account of their, their, um, um, their fight for liberation, their escape. Um, but there's actually very, very little uh, in the voice of Ellen Craft, really what was going on for her 
Um, and for me, it was just like this most extraordinary um, performance, um, a performance of a black woman playing a white man and knowing that the stakes were so high that to be caught, to do a bad performance, if Ellen Croft did not perform as brilliantly as she must have done, and William Croft as well, but she, if she had not performed as well, she, we would never have heard of her. She'd be, she, she would have been re-enslaved, maybe killed, etc. We know the horrors. So there's something about that, in, not just the fight for liberation, but the, but the performance itself and, and using performance outside of what we think of perform, as performance. So I kind of got fascinated by her and then at the same time, I was thinking a lot about, um, about climate change. And this was like over 20 years ago now, thinking about um, how do we talk about, how do we talk about the, the planet in crisis and how do we connect that with, with black experience and, Af and, and particularly the African continent? How do we have that? Which now almost seems like we were so ahead of our time. Now with people having that conversation, but, but um, back in the early 2000s people were not talking about that and as far as I was concerned it's like actually it's devastating our peoples more than anybody else in the on the planet so we've got to talk about it um and how do I how do I talk about climate and and I also really want to tell this story of this of this cross-dressing and so I just came up with this idea of this African-American woman who escapes slavery cross-dresses a white man but becomes a sailor on board a whale. It comes to England, and, and in England, that's where I kind of, kind of, take the story off into fiction. She becomes a sailor on board a whaling ship, um, bound for Antarctica, and so she becomes the first black woman, if you want to call her that, um, stepping foot on Antarctica. So, very long story short, I I I went to Antarctica. Um, with an incredible genderqueer artist called Della Grace Volcano and. Yeah, painted my face white and cross-dressed as a white man in mid-19th century costume. And we did this incredible shoot and the material. In Antarctica. Yeah, in Antarctica, yeah. <laughs> and Black people are always doing the most. I love yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. We go to extremes, man. We know what it is. We know what it is to live in extreme. We know, we know we're not afraid of the edge, you know, particularly black queer people. Busy being black returns in just a moment. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with performer, playwright, and theater maker Mojasola Adubayo. 
She has two plays touring the UK this year, Stars, an intergalactic orgasmic space odyssey, and Family Tree, a powerful and poetic drama exploring race, health, and the environment. In Family Tree, Mojasola reanimates the life and story of Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were extracted from her cervix without consent and have since been used to advance biomedical research around the world. Family Tree is directed by Matthew Zia, the award-winning artistic director of Actors Touring Company, and tours nationally from March until June. You'll find more information about STARS and Family Tree in the show notes. What does Ellen Craft's performance in real life enable you to do on stage, as it were? I, I think I didn't realize until I gave a talk much, you know, quite a, quite a long time after that show about, about um, Roger the Antarctic. And I did a talk at Goldsmiths, my old college. And I didn't realize until that point in which I was giving the talk that, that what she had enabled me to do was answer, first of all, um, my kind of deniers at college who said I couldn't, I couldn't perform. Um, so the very, very first time I got up to perform at Goldsmiths College, um, I was, long story short, but I was t- playing an 88-year-old white man. I had to do a little two-hander scene. And it was a, a, a scene between an English old gentleman and his maid. And I, it was me, and I'm I'm kind of I'm tall and androgynous and a fairly deep voice and happy to play anybody. And I was with a very small, quite a feminine white woman. And we had to do this scene between this old man and this this maid. And, and we're like, well, she was like, I'll do the maid. And I was like, okay, I'll do the old man. So I was like, I didn't know anything about acting. My acting was appalling. I was just trying to impersonate Marlon Brando most of the time. But <laughs> with cotton wool stuffed in my cheeks, literally, and my mom's 80s suit on and my hair slicked back. And playing this old white guy in the scene, I was told to do the scene. I, I had no choice. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an assignment. And um, somebody objected to to me doing the scene and said, a black cannot play a white person. And I will never forget the language, a black cannot play a white person. And there was this whole debate that emerged with all the white students basically agreeing with this horrendous comment and the teacher just standing to the side and just, who's long gone now, uh, and just letting this abuse happen. And I was sitting there thinking, I've got fucking cotton wool stuffed in my mouth. I'm wearing my mum's suit. My acting is appalling. Um, and you've got a problem with the fact that I'm black playing a white person like I'm 18 and he's 88 this is a shit scene and we're in southeast London and there's a world going on outside the door and like what the hell you are offended by the fact that I'm black paying a white person so back to Ellen Croft what does she enable me to do was in that moment when I taught when I was invited back to Goldsmiths to give a presentation about Modular the Antarctic I realized that I had spent all of this time answering responding to that accusation that I could not somehow step out of the the you know, that I couldn't, that they had a frame for me and that I wouldn't, that I was not allowed to play, to play a white man. And I, I went all the way to fucking Antarctica and paint the whitest place on the planet and painting my face white. And that's what Ellen Craft gave me, that we can go anywhere, that we can be anything, that we can do anything. And all of these categorizations and restrictions and all of this crap that we are given, um, the rhythm that we're set in, all of this stuff is just totally bullshit and we can we can stretch out of that and that's that's ellen craft and that story about the students at goldsmith objecting to you playing a white person 
Ellen Craft and indeed Marge of the Antarctic are reflecting whiteness back to itself as a constructed performance, right? Because aren't they protesting this idea that they're, sorry, they're affirming this idea that race, this kind of phenotypical designation is mm-hmm. inherent. And because it's inherent, there's a way it's performed and it cannot be performed by those outside of the race. But actually mm-hmm. you and Alan are both demonstrating that yes, it can. Like <laughs> I can fool you that I'm white as many people have done. Like in the same way that blackness is a performance in some ways. Totally, a- absolutely. And just I- exposing it all for, for the lie that it is. You know, one of the most extraordinary things about Antarctica is it's got all of this discourse around of whiteness around it. And, and the first kind of explorations of Antarctica all happening at the same time as colonization of Africa, you know, these things all go together and this kind of selling of white, of this kind of white space and to be conquered by white men and all of this, you know, it it all feeds into this discourse of whiteness and and white supremacy. Antarctica is black. It is black. It's just the snow that's white. And that really, really, um, I couldn't believe it when I first went there and saw these rocks and thought, this is this is black volcanic land. There's nothing white about it. And the line in Modern Antarctica is white is a cover-up. It's a beautiful lie. We know this, this race stuff is a lie. And I think that also maybe comes from a from my experience of being mixed heritage in some way, of always thinking, hmm. Uh, doesn't quite make sense, does it? Like the exception to the rule, like mm-hmm. there's black and there's white and there's Asian and that's it. But you're a mixed race and that's a bit different. And it's like, mm, doesn't the exception to the rule quite challenge the rule? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the same way that you know, there's men and there's women and that's it. Ooh, what about intersex people? What about trans people? Doesn't the doesn't the exception to the rule mean that the rule isn't, there isn't a rule? But the, yeah. How does that work? Like, yeah. I want to go to Antarctica. I've never wanted to go to Antarctica before this moment. <laughs> 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 I don't like being cold. So I went skiing only for the first time last year when I'm 36. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did have a whale of a time though. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, you've got two plays touring concurrently this year and i think you're the first black woman in the uk to have two tours two plays touring concurrently in the same year is that right it's it's quite possible i i I wondered it's quite possible certainly maybe the first living playwright i'm 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 cautious because there are some amazing people out there that it could it could have happened but i i i think not i think it's quite possible and certainly black queer one you <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking of all those of listeners who, and even myself, really, like who are or were at school, were struggling, were like questioning this kind of university complex around them. I was at London College of Fashion, and I had these dreams. I went to, I wanted to go to London College of Fashion because I was going to follow in Tom Ford's footsteps. And then I got to London College of Fashion, and I was like oh, this place is vacuous. I just hated the experience and I dropped out and I couldn't find myself within that space. I didn't see the dream I had. 
there, as mm-hmm. it were. And so it's so amazing to hear you went to Goldsmiths and were in drama kind of on accident. <laughs> and have now one of the most celebrated <laughs> playwrights and theater makers in the UK. It's it's remarkable. And now you've got these two plays touring concurrently. It's it's incredibly impressive. That's really kind of you. I don't I don't know if I'm one of the most celebrated, but I just keep going, you mm. know. I'm just keeping going and I go I keep going when they say you can't you know I got turned down a lot in terms of going to Antarctica I got turned down twice by the British Antarctic survey this crazy black lesbian wants to go down there cross dressed as a white man no <laughs> and the, more they me yeah. down, the more I said I'm going I'm going I'm fucking going my friends are like it's cold I, like, I don't give a fuck I'm going to Antarctica I'm doing it I just I just keep going that's that's if that's to be celebrated then wonderful well it was definitely celebrated here um I'm interested in Stars and Family Tree, the two plays you have touring concurrently Mm. um, in the UK this year. Stars, the Afrofuturist space odyssey. Can you talk to us about what that is and how it came about? Sure. It's um, Stars is is the story of a very old woman who wants to go into space um, in search of her own orgasm. She's never had an orgasm. She's 80 odd years old. Her husband's just died and she's decided things need to change and that this is an opportunity. And and the catalyst for this kind of moment in her life is is one that her husband has died and she's had a very, very miserable, long 16 plus year marriage. Um, um, But also that she's had these three encounters um, that get her thinking about her body, about trauma, about recovery from trauma, about the possibility of love and the possibility of sexual fulfillment. Um, uh, and one of the, one of the encounters is with a, a, a girl child, actually, um, who we discover has been through a non-consensual, um, traditional harmful practice. A very long way of talking about FGM. Um, and she learns a lot from that child. And that child's own dream is also to go, is to go into space. She's kind of obsessed with space travel. Um, who teaches, who teaches the old lady a lot. The old lady's called Mrs. We, we discover her name right at the end. I won't give it away. Um, and she also remembers an encounter with a would-be lesbian lover in a laundrette. Um, many years before and she's kind of repressed that story and that experience but it's kind of the closest she got um and um and then an encounter with an old friend um called maxi who um reveals that she's intersex and that she hasn't told mrs that before um and that her orgasms are out of this world and that she um yeah an intersex person who has been, um, I don't know about fortunate, but she has not been through um, what a lot of intersex folk go through um, as children, which is a non-consensual surgery. Um, and so um, Maxi is has a, a larger than average um genitalia and um and has out of this world orgasms so it's giving a lot away 
but I'm teasing people into the show. I do people want them to come and see it, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so so these three encounters are what gets Mrs. thinking about herself and all of the desires um, um, and excitement and all of the possibilities that she's not allowed herself. I, I wrote it because I've been wanting to talk about orgasm and, and anorgasmia and the condition of not being able to orgasm I've wanted to talk about that for a very very long time and um I, I I feel like now I can talk about it and but I needed to talk about it at some kind of distance from myself um and that's why the central character is is very very elderly I thought okay let's make her much older than me and that's also why she goes into space. I'm like, how, how far can I take her? I'll take her into space <laughs> and I'll put her in her 80s to give myself some emotional distance from talking. Oh, and you've already been to Antarctica. <laughs> and now we go into space. So there's a theme. Um, but yeah, so so to, to talk about subjects, I suppose, that are, are quite are very close to me, but also very painful, um, but to give them some kind of ecstatic, expansive, um, feeling i thought it was interesting that this is an afrofuturist space odyssey mm -hmm. also because i didn't know obviously that it was a, a distance making exercise as well but because pleasure is essential to our liberation which i'm only just mm -hmm. learning adrian marie brown um has done a lot of writing and organizing around um pleasure activism but also jana brown um the scholar who wrote black utopias last year um says that moments of utopia happen through the gratification of sensual desires we open up and let ourselves go perhaps we can think of desire differently not as consumption but as relational and charged with the potential to explode all attempts to order and contain it mm. and so this idea that we this pursuit through mrs pursuit of this mm. orgasm and her encounter with these other people who are learning to orgasm them, themselves or at least pursue pleasure feels like a pursuit of freedom. Absolutely. I totally, I really believe that, that, that the, the power of pleasure and that pleasure is political and that particularly collective pleasure. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose pleasure in relationship in some, in some kind of way, I don't mean, you know, our relationship. Um, but when we get together on our own pleasure, that it, you know, people who are oppressed, to put it, to give a big gutter label, um, that people considered on the edge or powerless or having less power, when we get together and experience pleasure, whether that be at a party, in a dark room, in a dance floor, in a bed, um, it, or when we're just laughing together, it's powerful. I do believe it's life life-changing but world-changing as well um we're not supposed to we, we we were not enslaved to give us any kind of pleasure our the purpose was to deny us our pleasure and for our pleasure to be taken away and for the pleasure of others to be foregrounded same with queer life we're not supposed to that's why our lives have been so legislated well it's what has been legislated is our is our pleasure um, so yeah, so I think yeah, it's really, really powerful. And um, that's and that's also why the show transforms into a club night 
because I think it's the closest I get to orgasm with my clothes on is on a dance floor with other people. So the show, so I thought it's not enough to just do some do some play. We have to we have to do something that feels like that kind of collective revolutionary pleasure. And and so yeah, so on a couple of occasions, um, the show immediately transforms into a club night, and I'm just I just love that. Well, and this idea that pleasure is is not incidental, like it's not an accident. It's not mm-hmm. something that we pursue at the weekend or when we finished all of our work or when we have a bit of free time, but that it's central, right? It's it's an animating thrust, yeah, <laughs> if you'll excuse absolutely. the pun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like when I'm running workshops, one of my kind of guidelines along with things about confidentiality and all kinds of other stuff is seek out the pleasure. It's a rule in my work, a kind of rule. Not that you can make a rule about it, but it's a rule, but it's just a desire. Like I just said, people find the pleasure, even in the difficult stuff, even in the in the really challenging exercises or whatever it, whatever it is, seek it out because you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to seek it out to seek it out and I, th- I think that's that's the kind of what I'm always trying to do in my work is to find the, the beautiful and the brutal that's that's to, to deal with brutal experiences that I've had and, and, and that you know many of us experience in our lives and our histories but to 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 find what is beautiful and to, to make to make beautiful memories to remake memories um, and not just in a kind of wishy-washy flimsy way but in the because I think it's revolutionary um, I think we weren't supposed to have that. I love this idea of the beautiful and the brutal. It's such a, I want to say beautiful way of understanding our ex, like our lived experience, our embodied experience, that it's always going to be a mixture of these things as we continue to move towards the futures that we deserve. And I suppose the brutal part of the beautiful is might be the family tree. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't want to brutalize the the play, but just to say that that, origin story of the family tree is is part of that brutality you seek to address in your work can you tell us a bit about the family tree oh yeah it's um the kind of centerpiece of the the play is or or the central kind of story of the play is around Henrietta Lacks and for those who don't know Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman uh, who at the age of 31 in 1951 in Baltimore, Maryland, um, uh, got a very aggressive form of cancer very quickly um, and sadly passed away. Um, And without her knowledge and without the knowledge of her family, more importantly, um, or just as importantly, sorry, um, uh, cells were taken from her cervix. Um, uh, because at the time in John Hopkins Hospital and like lots of places in the world, um, they were trying to find the key to kind of everlasting life, trying to find cures for cancer. Um, And so uh, a lot of people, particularly African-American people, um, had cells removed without without their knowledge. And they were trying to find at that point in John Hopkins Hospital um, cells that would survive outside of the human body, cells that would keep reproducing outside of the human body. And nobody knows why to this day, no scientist can give us the answer, Um, but Henrietta Lacks's cells kept reproducing and are still reproducing and I have been reproducing during our conversation. And um, they are the only immortal cells um and they have subsequently been sold to 
every lab in every country on the planet and every drug, every vaccine, um, just about anything one's, any kind of cure that anybody's had through any kind of medicine, traditional kind of medicine has been tested on her cells in some way. Um, so her cells have given rise to the greatest biological findings in history, to quote one researcher. Um, and yet, um, for many, many years, her family didn't know about that. And um, only until recently, most people don't, didn't even know her name. And her name was Henrietta Lacks, but her name, her cells were named Hila after the first two letters of her first name and her surname. But a lot of scientists, even still to this day, call her Helen Lane. So, so um, the fact that she was an African-American, the fact that she was a black woman, um, that story was kind of covered up and she was made to seem as if she was white. Um, of I'm course. Giving her a, yeah, Helen, <laughs> Helen Lane or Helen Larson, she's still, but she was an African-American woman. And yeah, but also, of course, yeah. the only immortal cells that mm -hmm. scientists have been able to find came mm -hmm. from the cervix of a black woman. Like, of course, <laughs> <laughs> where else would they be? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's just yeah. the most wonderful. Yeah, there you go. Beautiful and brutal. It's a big task to take on um, a story like this, a story mm -hmm. as brutal as this. What do you hope the family tree does in this kind of reanimation of of Henrietta Lacks's life? I mean, I I, I hope it, and, and it does, I think already kind of bring awareness to her, um, but I'm not the first. There's a really great book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks um, by a woman called Rebecca Skloot, um, which is a really, really great book. However, what it doesn't do is kind of imagine Henrietta speaking to us now um, from the Petri dish, as it were, um, and I, I've seen herself in, in the lab in, in Berlin and kind of, you know, given thanks to her and, and, and this kind of idea that she's still reproducing um, in this kind of, that if you were to write down a list of things that God is, whether one is a believer or not, that what is God, um, omnipresent, all-powerful, a source of healing, perhaps, you know, that Henrietta is some kind of God, you know, in, in whether one believes in God or not, you know, but in terms of this kind of the fact that she is everywhere and she has outlived her own life, um, that she'll keep reproducing beyond us. Um, it's quite ama amazing. It's just the most extraordinary story. And I think there's a just just a massive kind of power in the knowledge of that in terms of I think um black life under under threat um as we have been for 400 years and that to remind us that we that life itself that our life itself is everlasting that we are immortal and that we go beyond the bounds of man-made time and man-made space you cannot contain Henrietta Lacks I recently met a scientist who works with Henrietta Lacks's cells a very very prestigious scientist in Cambridge and she said you know what you you, you do you don't want her in your lab Henrietta that is Hila. you don't want her in your lab because she contaminates everything 
now in in the good sense and she's very scientifically but she may but they're so powerful that if you have other cells in the same vicinity as henrietta lax's cells henrietta lax changes those cells into herself they're they're not just everlasting but they're the most powerful cells ever and i think as as human beings and particularly as peoples of African heritage, we need to know that, that we are beyond what has ever been prescribed for us. And I shiver when I think about it, that of course we are everlasting. Of course that knowledge has always been repressed. Of course we are. And then what else are we and can we be? What else can our inner selves reproduce and become? And everything that has shut down, shut us down for 400 years, our ideas of ourselves as we shut down in terms of queerness, in terms of gender, in terms of everything, the possibility in terms of where we can go in the world and whether we can go to Antarctica or not, or what we can do with our lives or whether we can you know everything that that was the whole purpose and most of all pleasure shut down so to just know that to just sit in that knowledge and enjoy that knowledge I think is incredibly powerful um yeah and and totally liberatory I mean through I mean through family tree as well I deal with some other difficult stuff and it's it's the wider theme of extraction is the, is the key theme, an extraction from black women's bodies, an extraction from the soil, extraction from the earth. And I look at the history, medical history as well, of gynecology and the fact that Western gynecology comes from experiments, non-consensual experiments on African-American women. Um, and I also look at extraction now and extraction of black life in terms of the, uh, in terms of medical workers and the NHS and because I wrote the play during COVID. So I was thinking about the lack of recognition for, for, for black nurses and doctors. Um, so I have these other stories running through and Henrietta's at, at the center of it. Um, but I think there's, yeah, she's at the center of it because there is, in, I think, enormous power and enormous hope um, in that. And, and um, that it's, it's imagination, but it's science. It's like, <laughs> you can also really prove it. So when science gives you something that is that is more than you could imagine, then what then could be imagined for the future? And is this notion of a future a construct? I think it is a construct. The future and the past is a construct that we are beyond this time. Um, and one of the most profound moments in Family Tree is when Henrietta has a conversation with a tree um, because she's angry, because she's seen the history of gynecology through these plays and she's watching the other, these other scenes in, in the play. And she, she addresses a tree and she says to this tree, all, the time, all this time I took you from my ancient friend. Like I sat beneath you and suckled my baby at your breast and you, you let us down, you saw tree everything that happened and how could it be that nature let it down let us down and nate and the tree itself which speaks back in these kind of androgynous black tones and i imagined the uh amazing trans artist vaginal davis being the voice of the tree i don't know if she would ever say yes but anyway shout out badge if you're there please do it um so the tree speaks back to henrietta lax and um 
and tells her, you're thinking in man-made time. Think with trees and things will feel completely different. And perhaps that's for you as well, <laughs> Josh, thinking with Andreas, thinking with your plant, um, thinking beyond, beyond the man-made, I think gives us gives us great power and hope that we are beyond time, that the oldest tree in the world is like 95,000 years old. Let's think with trees. Let's think out of the man-made. Let's think out of everything that's ever been constructed for us because Henrietta is in all of us. We, all of us is in all of us. Everything is everything. And we could just, yeah. I just feel so good talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mojasola Adebayo is a Black British performer, playwright, director, producer, workshop leader, and teacher of Yoruba and Danish heritage. Over the past 25 years, she has worked on various theater and performance projects from Antarctica to Zimbabwe. She has acted in over 50 theater, television, and radio productions, and devised and directed over 30 scripts for stage and video. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com